0: How are we doing? Great. Great. Mark's great. The rest of you, I don't know. It's good to be back. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors. I had a little time off the last few weeks. Grateful for that. It's uh, good to be back with you, though, today. Uh, One more announcement I have for you is that, uh, one, first I should say, we are super grateful for the faithful few. Uh, who have been serving uh, these last few weeks, kind of helping welcome you, uh, usher you to your seats, preparing some of the communion packets for you to pick up and all that, helping wipe down the space in between the gatherings. But uh, those faithful few could use uh, some help and some relief. And so um, as you all are here, hopefully as you start to feel uh, more comfortable as as not only being here, but willing to re-engage in serving, just want to challenge you and encourage you, Uh, We are a gospel-centered community on mission here. Uh, We think the church is a family, which means that we all have a role to play. Uh, And so as you're comfortable, as you're able, um, we want to put you in in an uncomfortable situation. If you're not ready for that, uh, we really could use a few more folks to volunteer, particularly with this gathering, uh, kind of serving as ushers and and kind of door holders and welcoming folks in as they come in here. So if you would be willing to do that, uh, I would actually like to ask you to right now, grab your phone if you have a device with you uh, and go to redeemerbloomington.org and then click on the virtual connect card and then check the boxes for the teams that you would be willing to help out with hospitality, greeting, welcoming, ushering, uh, the utility team with kind of helping in between the gatherings with wiping down high contact surfaces, preparing the communion packets, all that sort of stuff. Uh, if you're unable to do that, you could also send an email to info at RedeemerBloomington.org to let us know about that. At this time, we don't have RK Redeemer Kids open yet, um, and we're we're not. It's not only because there's not enough volunteers, but uh, definitely before we are going to be able to reopen RK, uh, we're going to need more volunteers there as well. So, as We prepare and look ahead for when that day comes. We don't know. Um, uh, If you're willing to serve with Redeemer Kids, you can also check that box as well uh, to prepare for that. Uh, I want to thank you all for your faithfulness in giving. Uh, It's been super encouraging as a church uh, that even while we're scattered about, and obviously this room doesn't look like it used to look at 11 uh, a.m. pre-pandemic, the giving has been exceptionally faithful, uh, and we have been really blessed. Uh, by your generosity. Uh, and I just want to encourage you to keep it up. Uh, this church will only exist, other churches will only exist as long as their members and their regular tenders are faithful uh, in giving in that way. And so just encourage you to keep, keep that up. Well, in the, the last battle, right, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Peter and Lucy and the others, uh, they're at the end, they're, they're, they are confused. They have just witnessed the complete destruction of Narnia, and yet they now find themselves in a land almost exactly like it, only better. And you read there near the end of chapter 15, I believe, uh, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. I have come home at last. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this come further up, come further in. And as they begin running deeper and deeper into the country, they discover that no matter how far they go, no matter how far they go, there's always more ahead of them. The call kind of continues through that next chapter come further up, come further in. Now now Lewis in that is giving us kind of a a picture uh, of glory in the new heavens and the new earth uh, and and pointing to the reality that there will be no end to discovering the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God for all eternity. We will never exhaust the facets of, of God's glory in eternity. But I think this call also uh, further up, further in, is also really at the heart of what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here in our text today, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. He's saying to us, even right here and right now, this side of glory, there is always more to explore in the gospel. There's always something more to uncover about the glory of Jesus and his love for us. Uh, He's calling his hearers, his readers, come further up. Come further in. Uh, don't grow complacent. Don't settle. Don't grow cold and stale and stagnant. But keep going. Keep growing in the Lord. That's what we see Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the ability to to gather today. Uh, We thank you for your word. And we thank you that even though your word says hard things uh, to us sometimes, um, your heart is to use those hard words to make us... Um, your people, to make us your people who enjoy you more, who live for your glory in every way. And we pray that you'd help us to see in this our our desperate need for your son, that he alone supplies the hope that we we look for and long for. And Lord, that, that there is always more to uncover in looking into the gospel of how he's lived for us, died for us, and been raised for us. And is even right now interceding for us, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you warn us today where we need to be warned? And would you give us assurance where we need assurance of our standing with you? pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen. You may have a seat. For a minute, I was like, is this the first time that there's more people in the balcony than there are down here? I don't know. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but glad you're all in here. Uh, in this passage, we see a, a word of exhortation, uh, a word of warning, and in the end, we're going to uncover kind of a word for us in all of this. First, uh, we see a word of exhortation, right? The passage begins with, with a word of encouragement, to go on to maturity, or to go on to perfection, as it says in the old King James, right? That we are to, we're to keep growing until that day where we stand face to face with Jesus in glory, and we are perfected, we are glorified, and united with him forever and ever there. Uh, it is a continuation of this thought that we looked at last week about the need to keep growing in the faith. Uh, one pastor had shared an illustration that, that life is uh, like a down escalator. That all of life is is like a down escalator. And I don't know about you, uh, maybe in your younger, more rebellious years, I don't know if you ever tried to run up a down escalator. Has anybody ever done that? Yes, okay, right? And so you know what happens, right? If you're running up the down escalator and then at some point you stop running, you don't just stay at that same level, right? You immediately begin descending backward and downward to where you came from. And life is sort of like, A down escalator. Like, I I took two years of French in high school, and and then I took uh, four semesters, four more semesters of French in college. And then right after I graduated college, uh, date myself here, and and this was after the five-year undergrad plan, uh, May of 98 and June of 1998, I went on a one-month-long mission trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they speak French and Swahili. And so I was able on that one month to, you know, be dangerous and sort of understand what some people were saying some of the time and sort of communicate some things that I wanted to say some of the time. June 1998, haven't used French since then. Do you know how much French I speak now? Uh, does anybody know what French is for none? none? Uh, I, I don't know. That's, uh, that's what I got because I don't even know that anymore. Um, life is like a down escalator. Or maybe uh, thinking about going to the gym or, or exercise. Right, If you're a runner, uh, a runner who's taken a long vacation from running. I'm not sure if that still makes you a runner or not. But, uh, but you've taken a long break from running and then you decide to get back out there and, and start running again. Those miles that you used to be able to run are not quite as easy as they once were. Uh, the pace is not quite at the same place it was before you, you took that long break. Or, or if you're lifting weights right? Uh, you, you get out of that routine. You don't just jump right back in the gym at the same weight and the same reps that you were doing, uh, you know, 16 years ago. Uh, it takes some time to kind of build and return because life is like a down escalator. And the preacher Hebrews is reminding us that through this section that it's the same way in the Christian life, that if you begin to stray from communing with God in the Word, in His Word, and in prayer, If you pull away from Christian community, from from sharing life with brothers and sisters in Christ who are pouring the gospel back into you constantly, you you pull away from that. You don't simply stay parked at the exact same spot spiritually. You begin drifting backward and downward. You're, you're, You're either growing or you're shrinking because life is like a down escalator. You're either growing or you're dying. That's, that's kind of the context here that we pick up in this text today. With that in mind, the author of Hebrews gives us a word of ex- exhortation here to go on to maturity, to go on to full development in the Christian life. Now, when he says when he speaks of leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ, we need to understand that, that he's not saying, this does not mean that we're leaving Christ or we're leaving the gospel behind. Uh, this is not saying that there's like some sort of advanced material beyond the gospel. Like the, the gospel is kind of the elementary entry level. And then you, 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 you grab a hold of that and then you move on to the advanced material. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's referring to. But rather what he's talking about is that, that on the basis of understanding the elementary things, Christians, you and I as believers, should continue to grow to maturity. Rather than settling to remain as babies in the faith. Unable, as it says at the end of chapter 5, to discern good for evil for ourselves. Now the illustration of of constructing a building is kind of employed here in verse 1. Which kind of points to the silliness uh, of seeking to construct a building by laying the foundation over and over and over and over again. You you don't do that when you're building something. You don't continue to just lay the foundation again and again and again. Foundations are very important. But once they are laid, you build upon them. You don't continue to just lay the same foundation over and over. The author then goes on to mention six facets of this elementary doctrine. This foundation that he's encouraging these first hearers and believers to, to then build upon. And they're presented here basically in three couplets, three pairs, uh, in these first uh, three verses. And it's likely that these were part of a very early catechism, right? Just kind of a foundational teaching instruction of basic doctrine used in these first century Jewish Christian churches that he's speaking to. And this first couplet uh, focuses on repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. The Bible always emphasizes the necessity for repentance. For there to be a true conversion. In fact, there is no authentic faith in Christ apart from repentance of sin. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and not repent of your sin. And not see that your sin needs to be repented of. You can't just say, I'll just take Jesus and all the blessings, but I'm going to live however I want. There's no genuine faith there. But here, the focus in this text is on repentance from dead works. What's that? Well, that's seeing the need to turn from your own dead works of the law, your own religious performance as the means by which you seek to earn a righteousness of your own. It's turning from that and trusting in Christ's righteousness that he gives you as a gift through faith in him. A Christian understands that it is, after all, Christ's righteousness, not your own, that that saves you. It's elementary that you must turn from trying to earn your own salvation and instead trust in the finished work of Christ for your rescue. Repentance and faith, right? You see that right there. They go together. They're inseparable. This first couplet reinforces the basic doctrine, the essential doctrine, that we are justified, that is, declared not guilty before God, declared righteous before God, that we are made right with God and restored in right relationship to God, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That is essential to the gospel. To move toward maturity, you have to leave behind trusting in your own religious performance, trusting in your own dead works of the law. You can't take Christ and then go back to like, okay, so what maintains my faith is all my religious performing here, uh, all of my dead works. You must continue on in repentance and faith day by day by day. The second couplet refers to ceremonial washing and the laying on of hands. And both of these were were integral to Judaism. Again, the author of Hebrews, who's he writing to? He's writing to first century Jewish Christians. He's speaking to Jewish Christians. This is their background, this is what they've come out of. And he's He's saying to them, in order to move on to maturity, these Jewish believers need to leave behind their confidence in ritualistic practices. It's not ceremonial washings and laying on of hands that make them clean before God. It is the finished work of Christ and the Holy Spirit's applying of that finished work to their hearts and their lives, regenerating them, renewing them day by day as they walk with Christ in faith. The third couplet is the resurrection of the dead and and eternal judgment. And, And here the focus is on the final judgment and its eternal consequences. They go together. The resurrection of the dead is for that final judgment. And unless Jesus Christ stands on that day as your advocate, as your substitute, you cannot, you will not be able to stand before God in that judgment that is coming. And that reality, that should not be ignored. There's a reality we should always understand that, that's, that we, we, were, we are going to stand before the Lord in glory. And he is going to judge the living and the dead. That should always be in front of us and, and in our minds. It shouldn't be abandoned. But there are other teachings that should also be addressed by the maturing Christian. So from this foundation, these first-century believers were exhorted, right? They were encouraged to go on to maturity, to go further, to go deeper into the gospel. And he says this in verse three, and this we will do if God permits. Now this is no just like simple pious nod to God. This is not like to, you know like a lot of times we say, "Hey Lord, willing, I'm going to do this." And we say it, and we're very insincere. We just kind of like throw it on to the phrase so we sound spiritual. But this is a sincere, Lord willing, which reminds us that our growth toward maturity is dependent upon the work of God. Not on, we can't make ourselves mature in the faith of our own strength. We need God for that to happen. This would be impossible for us to grow and and persevere and and, and mature just by our own will. It must be according to God's will. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over our faith. He's sovereign over our perseverance. Sovereign over our growth. We must depend upon God for our faith and our growth and our perseverance. This is a, a reminder that we must be in prayer about our spiritual lives and our growth. Praying to God for strength, praying to God for endurance, praying to Him that He would grow us and grow our passion to want to know Him more. But at the same time here, the author communicates his confidence in the Lord. He says, this we will do. We will do if God permits It's similar to to, to the confidence that that Paul displays in Philippians 1.6 when he says, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And with that sense of trust, with that sense of confidence in God, the author of Hebrews gives a word of exhortation. Go on to maturity Press on, further, deeper. But he also gives a word of warning. And this is a very strong, a very, very strong word of warning here in verses four through eight. He says there again, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. If you read the commentators on Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, they will all in unison tell you this, these are some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. And this warning is a, is a warning about the impossibility of restoring to repentance those who have been enlightened and tasted the, the goodness of God in His Word and then have fallen away. That sounds pretty terrifying. But who is the warning about? Who is this warning about? Who are these once enlightened people who have tasted the heavenly gift? And historically, uh, there there have been three primary ways of understanding this passage. Uh, I'm going to share all three of them with you, even though I only think one is really biblically valid. But the first is to understand this as a hypothetical warning. That is to say that this is simply a rhetorical technique where the author of Hebrews is is offering this terrifying warning about something that's actually not even possible, can't happen, as a way to motivate Christians to cling to Christ all the more tightly that they may continue to grow in grace. Now, The problem with that is that it makes absolutely no sense, for one. Uh, The passage at face value does not seem to be talking about something that's hypothetical. The tone here uh, does not seem to be be mentioning something that's not possible, uh, that's hypothetical. Uh, And if this sin were impossible to commit it, it, would raise the question, why would you even mention it if it's not possible? What's the point? Seems a little absurd to warn about something that can't be done. It would also wouldn't be the most God-honoring tactic and strategy for motivating someone. That's the first way. Second way is to understand that this is a warning that this warning is speaking about genuine Christians. Christians who have truly repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, Christians who were active in the body of Christ, but then have fallen away. Now, if this is the case, this is truly a terrifying warning because it's telling us that many genuine Christians will fall away from the faith. But the problem with this understanding is that the Bible again and again tells us that God keeps us. That he sustains us. That he does not let his people go. I've already heard what, what, what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Do you hear the assurance there? But there are more passages. Jesus himself says this in John 5, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear that? There is no maybe in that verse. There's no unless uh, in that verse. Jesus says it as a done deal, signed, sealed, delivered. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has right now, eternal life that cannot be taken from you. He does not come to judgment. You will not come to judgment but you have passed from death to life. Romans 8, 38, 39, Paul writes there, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do a little word study on the Greek. Nothing means no thing. Nothing, right? No person, place, or thing. Nothing can separate you, Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 6 through 8. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. How will he sustain you? Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question marks there. If you are in Christ. He will sustain you. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. But the Lord is faithful. Remember he's sovereign over our spiritual lives. He will establish you. And guard you against the evil one. You see, you put all that together, and it, it is very clear that, that as, as Christians, true believers in Christ, God holds us, and and nothing can pluck us out of his hand. Our salvation is secure in him. And so we need to remember, whenever we're confronted with a difficult passage, a, a hard passage to understand, like this one here in Hebrews 6. You have to make sure that you're seeking to interpret that passage, understand what that passage is saying in light of the whole teaching of the whole Scripture, the whole Bible, in light of other clearer passages of Scripture. The Bible, after all, is unified. It does not contradict itself. And so as we look at it as a whole, it will help us understand these less clear, more difficult passages. And so by looking at the whole Bible, we can know that this warning is not, it's absolutely not addressing genuine Christians losing their faith. Because other passages of the Bible very plainly, very clearly tell us genuine faith in Christ cannot be lost. Rather, those who leave and are guilty of apostasy never really had true faith to begin with. Which is exactly what John says when speaking about a situation in the church where a group of false teachers had abandoned the faith, had abandoned the church. It says this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, then it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so, the third way, and in my opinion, the most biblically faithful way to understand this passage is that it is, in fact, a real warning. It is a real warning. It's not hypothetical, but it's not a warning for genuine Christians. It's a warning for those who have tasted the things of Christ, but have not become genuine followers of Jesus. There's, there is a reality, we understand, right, that there are people who hear and, and can respond in a positive way to the gospel, but yet they don't truly believe it. They don't truly embrace Christ in repentance and faith. They might know a lot about the gospel, but they're not actually Christians. Right? You can be the Bible trivia wizard and know a lot about the Bible and not know Jesus. It doesn't mean your heart has been gripped by the grace of God. There's a reality that you can be hanging in and around Christian community, in the church. And because of your proximity, you can experience some of the blessings of Christ. And you may even show some of the gifts of the Spirit. You might even make a proclamation of faith. You might even follow up that proclamation by being obedient in baptism. Publicly identifying yourself with Christ and His church. You can look like a believer in Christ, but that doesn't make you one. How is this possible? What are we to make of this? Well, before we get too far into that, we, we do need to understand the specific context here because the context is really crucial to understanding what the author of Hebrews is really addressing. We need to remember the situation that he's speaking into. The book of Hebrews, again, is originally addressed to first century Jewish Christians who are enduring severe suffering and persecution, like intense persecution, not we have to wear face masks, like, I mean, real persecution. Just so you know, if Jesus can veil his glory, like we can veil our nose and our mouth for a little while here. Um, you know, so he can rescue us. I think we could do that. Like real persecution is what I'm talking about. And some of them were feeling pressure to return to Judaism in order to escape that persecution. Like I can get out of this suffering. I may not have to die a violent death if I just return to my old faith. And the warning here is, and some of them were doing this. The warning here is that if these perceived believers return to Judaism, they renounce their faith in Christ, they are in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand that, you need to go to Matthew chapter 12. I'm not going to read all that passage to you. I'm going to try to sum it up for you for the sake of time. But Matthew 12 addresses this unforgivable sin where a group of Pharisees witness Jesus heal this demon oppressed man. And, and, and as they witness this, they attribute what Jesus does to heal this man to Satan. They say he does it in the, by the power of Beelzebub, right? They accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan himself saying that that was how he was able to perform this healing. They deny the Spirit's testimony in that moment of who Jesus actually is and attribute what came from God as coming from Satan. And that brought about, in that moment, their irredeemable damnation. That's what Jesus says there. The author of Hebrews is is warning that these perceived believers who return to Judaism, renouncing Christ, are in danger of committing a similar damning sin, where they crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In other words, by doing this, they join in with the voices of those on that first Good Friday who screamed out, crucify him. They join in with those who drove the nails through his hands and his feet and killed our Lord, treating Jesus as only a mere man. This apostasy that is being warned about here, you need to understand, this is not just some season of doubt, like where you're wrestling with doubt about, is this real? Is, is Jesus real? Like... Are we sure? This is not, not a season of doubt that's being talked about here. Uh, this apostasy is, is not a season of backsliding where you are caught up in sin and, and you're not walking in faith as you should be. It's not talking about that. This apostasy is a forceful, complete, and public rejection of the faith, that w- of a faith that was once publicly confessed. And when that happens, that sadly has, you know, negative effects for others as well as for the the apostate themselves. The Pharisees in Matthew 12 and Judas Iscariot serve as prominent examples of this sort of apostasy. Judas, after all, who as one of the twelve was once enlightened, was he Not? Who tasted the heavenly gift as he journeyed with Jesus those years of ministry. Who witnessed in the miracles of Christ again and again the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus was. Who tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come as he sat under Jesus' teaching. Yet in the end, Judas fell away. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed the Lord and joined in with those who crucified the Son of God to his own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a strong warning, a terrifying warning for churchgoers who, although they've been taught the gospel and and have professed faith, being baptized, are not actually true believers. But let me also in this moment offer you a word of comfort. For those of you who are maybe sitting in here right now going, have I done this? Like, am I guilty of this unforgivable sin? To ask that question is a powerful sign that you have not. And that even if you've been in a dark season spiritually, and you're not where you should be with the Lord, you you are still able to repent. You You are by no means outside the bounds of God's grace. In fact, think about the context of this warning. This warning is not issued by the preacher of Hebrews as a, you guys are out, sorry suckers. But it's issued as an invitation to repent, to not go down this path, to not reject Christ, but to return to him, to give your hearts fully to him, to repent and trust in him. And, and, and no assurance, and no peace, and no life that cannot be taken from you in Him. What are we to do with this? Right? After all, this, this is, there is in this a word for us. A word for us. And, and this word for us in our time, in our place, our context, is also both an exhortation and a warning. I don't know if if you're familiar, if you've seen this, but there was a a study that was just recently released by the Barna Group about church engagement kind of during the pandemic that was just put out, came out in early July. And according to that study, 32% of churchgoers have stopped attending church during the pandemic. That is to say, 32% of former churchgoers uh, before COVID 19 have not attended in person, have not logged online to watch a live stream or a recorded gathering, have not done anything, have not engaged in any way whatsoever during the entire pandemic with a local body of believers. That study also revealed that only 35% have faithfully and only attended their pre-COVID church during this season, while others have kind of used it as the opportunity to kind of like, you know, like the buffet, I'm going will listen to this celebrity preacher and this preacher over here and, and kind of consume a little bit different things. The good news, I would say, with that, you know, I'm not trying to shame anyone here, is that 68% of folks have remained. That's two thirds. Uh, I'm not great at math, but I can do this math uh, when it's real simple. Two thirds have kind of remained spiritually engaged through this season, but one third of Churchgoers, i have just checked out. I share that from a heart of real concern. And I know, like, obviously, you're here. I'm probably preaching for the choir. But you know, people, the enemy would love nothing more than to isolate us, separate us, separate Christians in this season, to make us feel alone, to discourage us, to sow seeds of doubt. We need Jesus and we need his church. We need our brothers and sisters to help stir us up to, to love and good works, as we'll read about in Hebrews chapter 10. We need one another. We need accountability and encouragement. Uh, From one another to persevere in the face of suffering and hardship, no matter what sort of suffering and hardship it might be. But hear this warning not as a sentence of doom and judgment, but as it is in the text, I think, a call to repentance, to return to the Lord, to return to His people, to press in deeper and deeper and deeper into the Word and into prayer, to go on to maturity. I just check out and think we're going to stay where we were and we'll resume when it's convenient. Remember that, that Hebrews is one letter, right? Or as we've said several times throughout the series, it's, it's more like one single sermon. And, and that sermon doesn't end here with this gloomy warning. There, there's more to the message to come. This, this isn't the heart of the message. The message is that, that Jesus is so much greater that's the heart of the message. He's so much greater than any hardship, any suffering, any season of, of doubt or sin or, or or struggle that we can go through. He's so much greater. The message is that Jesus delights. He delights to draw near to us at all times. And especially in our time of need. How do we know that? We look to the cross. And we see that it's Jesus' delight to lay aside the glories of heaven, to make himself nothing, to take on a human nature along with his divinity, to come and live the life, the sinless life that we never could and die the death that we deserve for our sins in our place on the cross. Not begrudgingly, but for the joy that was set before him, he delights to draw near to us in our sin, in our suffering. And to bring us in. The heart of this passage is that there is so much more of Jesus to know and to enjoy. There's so much more of the gospel to explore. There is absolutely no end to it. So many facets of the gospel that for all eternity we will never exhaust looking at all of them passage ends with an illustration here in verses seven and eight. It says, for, the, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is an illustration, again, of the, the warning of apostasy that's being talked about here. And it's an invitation to look at your life. What is the fruit of your life? What is it saying about where you're at? How how your relationship with Jesus really is? Is there fruit in your life? Be encouraged, Christian. If it's thorns and thistles, though, repent. Ask yourself, as the world looks at you, you, and they see you as the picture of the kind of people that Jesus makes, is that a good thing? This illustration is given that we might search our hearts, that we might cling to Christ. But it's also, it's also a real word of hope in this. Like what it's telling us here is that the same life-giving reign of God's word and grace, it falls on all of us in the worshiping community. And if we will abide in it, if we delight in it, it will bring forth fruit and we will be blessed. If we don't, there is only a curse. It's not unlike what, what Jesus kind of talks about in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The call here for us, I think, is to be people who look to Jesus, who press into Jesus and his people, people who seek to do, as it says in Philippians two twelve and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, That verse is not a call to rely on your own dead works. That verse is not saying, get busy making your faith happen on your own. That that, that verse is saying it's it's a call to rely on Jesus. He's the one who's achieved your rescue. You rely on him. It's a call to rely on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is at work within you. The one who testifies with you, with your spirit, that you are, in fact, a child of God. The, the Holy Spirit is the one who's constantly whispering words of assurance to your soul. If you listen, it's a call to live for God's glory. He is, after all, the one who sent his son to rescue you. Let the love of God in Christ move you to delight in his word and in prayer. Let it move you to make your home in the body of Christ, the local church where he surrounds you with with brothers and sisters to to encourage you, to build you up in the faith, but also to, to call you back when you stray away. Let the love of God in Christ move you to go on to maturity. And remember here, in Christ you have an anchor of the soul that will, will hold, no matter what storms or seasons come, come your way. Don't let any sin or doubt discourage you, but know that He welcomes sinners, doubters, to come to him, that He doesn't leave you to yourself. Come and cling to Jesus. He will hold you. He will sustain you, and he will take you with him further up and further in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us in Christ an anchor that cannot fail. And Jesus, help us by your grace to cling to you, to delight in your word, to abide with you in prayer. Holy Spirit, sustain us and assure us of all that Jesus has done for us. Grow us to maturity. Help us to be people who more and more give the world a picture of the goodness of God. Ambassadors of your love and grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.